0: Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, or if it's digital, feel free to tap your way there. We'd love for you to use a digital Bible, not a problem at all. Apparently, it's not as good for you, but I don't know. I like having a digital Bible, I use mine mostly. Matthew chapter six. As we continue thinking about anxiety, now we talked about it as a topic. What we're going to do this week and the next two weeks is sort of talk about it in a more direct way, or things that you might be anxious about. I think the Bible can can kind of be categorized as as sort of addressing fear in three sort of broad categories, and a lot fits into these categories. And like I say, if you're going to have fear not be your most common um, command, then you're going to say it about a lot of different things, but Broad strokes, there's a couple of different categories that we want to think about. And today, we're going to start with money. Let's talk about how much money you got and whether or not you got enough. Do you have enough? I don't know. It never feels like you do, right? Like, if money gets you pleasure and money gets you security, do you have enough for either I don't know that I've ever felt 100%. There's times when I don't think about it. So maybe at that time, I'm not worried about it. But when I do think about it, you start to worry because money is supposed to help you with a lot of things that you really got to get knocked out. If you have kids, then you're thinking about what those kids are going to need as they go. At first, it's just tons of stuff and food. Constant food, that's really all they need for a long time. They just want more food. You think they want you, they don't. They just want the food that you have. And that's not cheap, but it's not that bad. And as they go though, somebody says, man, you know, we have three girls. And so people kept saying to us, whoa, college for three and then three weddings. Wow, that's gonna be expensive. And we're like, thanks bro, yeah, I appreciate that. I didn't have enough stress in my world, you had to bring that up. And it's true. We have to figure that out in some way. And you think, well, you're a pastor. Maybe you save on that part. Maybe, but maybe I have to invite all of you to the wedding. That's not going to be cheap. (laughs) We're just going to have mints at that point. Um, We have expenses that are coming because we care about people that are dependent on us. We have expenses that are coming because we're not always going to be able to work. I don't know if you've ever thought about retirement and what that's going to look like and what number is needed for retirement, but that's a sketchy thought. I don't know how many of us even get to that thought because we get stuck at way earlier thoughts about whether we're gonna have enough for way more short-term goals, way more short-term needs. I mean, this is not a cheap city to live in. If you add in uh, the cost of maybe some kind of medical bill that you've got, maybe some student debt, maybe some debt on something else, you got a car payment and you're trying to figure out how to stay where you are, or maybe even gain a little bit more sort of financial flexibility, Man, we're talking about something that can constrict your heart. How do we deal with fear about money? Last week when we were talking about anxiety as a topic, as Eduardo brought up, we understand that anxiety is a good feeling in the sense that though painful, it's telling us something we want to know about. We would rather have anxiety in order to see what we are anxious about and deal with it than not have anxiety and just blunder into all kinds of dangers. What it teaches us is that something that we love is in danger, that something that we love is is under threat in some way. And so what we talked about last week is that when you feel anxiety, your number one job, the first job that you're supposed to do is to ask what it's anxiety about. If you just live with anxiety, okay, maybe you need to talk to somebody to help you try to get to a place where you can see. I've had this for a long time. It revolves around many different things. It's something that comes up chronically because it has to do with my view of myself or my view of the world or my view of the people that I love. Great. Okay. Let's dig into that. But if you get down to it, at some point you'll find that something that you love is under danger. Okay. Well, once you see that, then the Bible gives us some resources for what to do about it because God doesn't see you as your own thing that's just got to go figure out your own problems. He sees you as one of his creatures. Yeah, you're in rebellion against him, but, but he loves you. And for people that are Christians, what they've done is just say, like, I know I'm broken and I know you love me, Lord. Will you receive me into your kingdom? And and God, by his grace, that's what he did through Jesus, was make a way for people who are far from him to come near. And so he grabs you and he holds you close. And so if you are a Christian, when you have that thing that you're scared of, you go to God with that fear. That's what the Apostle Paul modeled as we were looking at the end of Philippians last week. When you feel anxiety, you got to examine it. But then, once you see it for what it is, you pray. Now, that sounds like denying anxiety, but that's the opposite of what we're talking about. I'm not saying deny the fact of it. I'm saying that once you see it, you take it to the one who can fix it. You pray. And then, as Paul continued to teach, what you do after that is you start thinking about things that are true and noble and Right pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. You give your mind two things that you can think about that are right and good. And you trust over time that God can take care of God's stuff and that you only focus on you stuff. We talked about a counselor that brought up the idea of two circles, a little six inch circle and then a big six foot circle. And what you got to do is realize that your little six inch circle of things that you can deal with is actually pretty small. Part of the problem, part of the reason that we feel so much anxiety sometimes is that we think we're responsible for things that of course we could never have much of an impact on. So how can we protect it? How can we deal with it? If that's anxiety as a whole, how do we start applying some of these ideas to specific things we're scared of? Like Having enough money. Well, Jesus taught about this, and maybe this is where most people go in their head if they're familiar with the Bible when they think about anxiety. This is one of the name, uh, main texts on anxiety. It's in Matthew chapter 6, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he preaches this sermon. I don't know, Sermon on the Mount. So, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gives three chapters of teaching. And in Matthew, is probably bringing together lots of things Jesus said. He was an itinerant preacher that Jesus said in lots of different places. These were the words of Christ about things that people needed to hear. It's very rubber meets the road kind of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things he talks about is anxiety. He says in Matthew 6, go down to verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> well, then he tells you why. Don't be anxious about what you are to eat or what you are to drink. Don't be anxious about your body and what you're gonna put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. neither gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, when we talk about money, we're really kind of begging a question because money is just a number. Money is just capital. What money does is provide. And Jesus is getting more to the heart of that when he says, why are you worried about the things that you must provide for yourself, like food and clothing? And then he gives you some examples. He starts by talking about birds. Have you ever taken him at his word here? Have you ever looked around and tried to really figure out where the birds are getting all their food from? Take a second and do math on it. It's crazy. In the wintertime, when you drive out to Fort Union State, for some reason, those power lines are just swarmed by birds in the wintertime. And when I drive by there, I always think about this passage and I think, where are the birds getting all this food? Last winter, especially. How much snow did we have last winter? Too much. It was so much that I bought the biggest snow plow that I could afford. The the snowblower I got needs like a license plate. It's enormous. (laughs) And all of that snow covering all of that ground means, where are the birds getting their food? When you look at the power lines and it's stocked with birds and you know the birds are there because it's a little bit warmer. Okay, they're warm for a second. But how are they eating? Well, because God knows. He's feeding them. There is provision, even in a fallen world, for even such small things, such comparatively worthless things as birds. How much more will God care for you? You think about the lilies of the field. Uh, some of the neighborhoods around here, and I think it's most all the neighborhoods around here, have people that are you know, older in the neighborhood. And I think there's a, just a large number of people that when they get to retirement, kind of cross that finish line and high five everybody and then just decide they're gonna put four or five hours a day into their yard. And if you're just a schlubby like dad, your yard, you're kind of happy if it's mowed. But then you see around you some of these retirees that have built the most immaculate, Edenic kind of yard gardens that you've ever seen in your life. And when you walk around, especially as winter ends and spring springs, you see all of this stuff come to life. It's jaw-dropping. You see some of these flowers that these guys have worked on, these rose bushes, these bluebells, these lavender bushes that smell so lovely. The little yellow flowers that are coming up right now. In our neighborhood, it's mostly in like little um, sort of park strips and rocks. They've allowed these, they look like sunflowers, but much smaller that are growing up all over the place. They're beautiful. They're so lovely. The the colors that are there, the patterns, the proportions, you, you can't beat them. And you compare that with the beauty that we see from people in the scriptures, which is what uh, he does by talking about Solomon. You think about your poor, uh, maybe, you know, guys can be very vain too, so I don't mean to just put this on ladies. But, you know, you, you're going to get ready for something and it's like, okay, well, we're going to need another half hour. We're going to need another 45 minutes. My poor wife has a hair thing and it got a really squeaky hinge on it. I don't know why and I can't fix it. But it's like the whole house knows that mom's getting her hair ready because kick out, kick out. It's like mom's getting her hair ready or like a creepy swing set is somewhere in the house. (laughs) And it just takes a while. We hear it for a long period of time. It's not easy to get yourself pretty. Poor uh, Esther in the book of Esther in the Old Testament had a 12-month process, a year-long process to get pretty enough to marry the king of Persia. Whoa, that's a long time. When you think about King Solomon, and the reason that King Solomon is brought up is because he was the king at the pinnacle point in the power and the wealth of the nation of Israel. In all of his wisdom, with all of his wealth, imagine what the process was the day before he dedicated the temple. Imagine the the sort of pedicuring that went on. Imagine the sort of oiling and and primping that goes on to make Solomon Solomon. Imagine the hours and maybe years of labor that go into the robe creation for that morning where he stands before the people of Israel to present the temple of God to the people of God. Can you imagine the time? And Jesus is saying, yeah, but the lilies of the field look better, and they didn't even try. They grew up out of dirt. They lived next to grubby little streets where grubby cars and grubbier kids are like walking all the time and they look fantastic if god can create not only provision but beauty all over the place like that can can he not provide for you Now, these are really specific examples, and I think for the kind of people that would have been reading these things or hearing these things originally, they maybe were more outdoors than we are. I don't know that they were working online, you know, in the first century, but if you're not a hiker, you should still make time to get outside and see this stuff. Now, you should see it because it's going to remind you of the teaching of Christ, but you should also get outside because I'll say in the literature on anxiety, one thing that comes up constantly is just getting outside, Just general mental health. If you can just take 10 minutes to walk and let a little bit of sun and a little bit of sky hit you, it makes a huge difference. A book that I referenced last week that I think is really helpful, so I'm gonna reference it as much as I can so maybe some of you will get it, called Untangling Emotions by Alistair Gross and Winston Smith. They say, we admit that 10 minutes facing into the breeze or feeling the sun on your face won't radically alter your mood most days. However, as with reading the Bible, it's hard to overstate the value of regularly reminding your body and soul that you live on a larger stage and in a larger story than your messy house or the four walls of your office that surround you hour after hour. Word, okay? So with all the other application points we're gonna try and throw at you, and a lot of them are like harder to kind of contextualize or or harder to kind of make into a concrete set of do A, not B. This one's easy. Go for a walk. You can't walk, get one of those mobility scooters. Just get outside somehow and let some of that beauty hit you and just realize just a little bit how small your little world is, how small your little six-inch circle is. Jesus tells us to think about the birds and think about the lilies, and then he continues. In verse 31, therefore, don't be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Now, just a little bit of context. Gentiles means non-Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish leader speaking to Jewish people. And we know that he had in his head that he was there for all the world, just like God told Abraham that he was going to through him bless all the families of the world. So there's a big, wide perspective coming. But in that time, as he's preaching, he's saying, even the non-God people, even the people without the oracles or the law of Moses, they know to seek after these things, there should be a difference between those people and the people that have been taught or the Jews. And your father, your heavenly father, he knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you see what happened? There's a lot of teaching that's going on there. But if you're just watching and you're saying to yourself, okay, I can understand a little bit of that, But mostly, I just want something to do here. I I need to fix this. Look at birds, look at flowers. Okay. But then he gets to the heart of it. Do you see what he says? He starts talking about kingdoms. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think that's it. You're talking about how a Christian understands anxiety or fights anxiety. That's your answer. He continues. Look, look. I think this helps you to understand what he's talking about with kingdoms, even though it, it's kind of going back up. So go back up to verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for neither where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there's a lot of things um, that happen in, in sort of ancient teaching and oral teaching, and one of them is called an inclusio, where they, they take something and they kind of put it at the beginning and the end. They help you to think about things at the, sort of the beginning and the end. And I think this connects. When he talks about where your heart is. And he talks about heaven. And then he, at the end of his teaching or or partway through his teaching, we were just talking about with the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's given you an either or there, isn't he? Jesus is saying you can have one perspective or you can have another perspective. And we would love for this conversation to be, you can be fearful or you can be peaceful But those are results. What he does is he gets to the root of it. He gets to the heart of it and says, you can have a perspective on this world which sees it as part of God's kingdom that's admittedly in rebellion and broken, but his or you can see it as your kingdom. And that's really at the heart of his teaching here. There's two different kingdoms and there's a lot of differences in them. If you were reading with me as as Jesus is talking about it, he's talking about how you can store your treasures on earth. You can store your treasure in heaven, meaning your heart can be focused on, can care about, can think most about things that are on earth or things that are in heaven. You can have an earthly kingdom mindset. You can have a heavenly kingdom mindset. And what are the differences in these kingdoms? Well, he says that the heavenly kingdom is perfect but, of course, uh, earthly kingdom is dangerous. It's riddled with problems. you got moth problems, you got rust problems, and you got thief problems. Those that we know are just, it's a, an analogy. He, he's, he's pointing to all the problems of this world. The kingdom doesn't have those problems. It's perfect. There's no rust there. there there's, there's no thieves there. It's perfect. But, but this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, is riddled with problems. Another thing that we can see is, is that one of these kingdoms is everlasting and one of them falls apart. One of them is unassailable and the other is like a spider's web. You, you don't realize that you've hit it until you just feel it on you and it's already destroyed. You don't realize just how, because it's the earth that we know, it's the world that we know, you don't realize just how transient it is. There's a graveyard between where we live and the grocery that we go to. Driving by yesterday, one of my kids, well, that's sad. And I was like, yeah, but it's also real. We can't not think about it, and death's one of our weeks that we're going to talk about. But this world, man, this world is a wisp of smoke. So, so, why would we ever choose the terrible and frail kingdom instead of the perfect and permanent kingdom? Why would we ever make that choice? Well, there's one more difference in these kingdoms. See, one is God's kingdom and one is your kingdom. Now, that's not really true, but it kind of is. The kingdom of heaven has a king already and it's God. But this life and this world that you can try to make for yourself, you can tell yourself is yours. And that's the rub, isn't it? To live his way is to live his way to live your way, is to live your way. Do you see the rub? Do you understand the attraction to the frail kingdom, to the broken kingdom? See, when God says that you can be part of his kingdom and you can enjoy the security of his kingdom, it's like being adopted by a dad. Boy, that's great. He loves you and he's there and you can talk to him, but he gets to tell you what to do. Like he sets the curfew and it's his car. You know, you can use it. But only when he says it's okay. Like, what you give up in autonomy, you may gain fourfold in peace. But boy, it's hard to give up that autonomy, isn't it? What's it like when you leave home and then go back for the holidays? Did you just love that experience? <laughs> yeah, it's great. They're great, of course. My parents are in the room. <laughs> but... <laughs> We normally feel a bit of a hiccup about having to go back to the ways of this home rather than the very specific ways of your home. My buddy was talking about that. He's like, yeah, you know, mom laws coming into town. It's going to be cool. She'll be here for a while, but we're really excited for us to get back to our respective camps. That's what he said, get back to our respective camps. And I was like, yeah, I get that because you're the king of your kingdom until your mother-in-law comes and then she's kind of, you know, confrontation. It's hard to give that up, right? Well, it's hard to give that up full stop. Think about what money is or the role that money plays in that equation. Because what is money, really? You know, it's pretend and you can start talking to your sort of conspiracy theorist friend about how it's not backed by anything and it's all gonna fall apart or whatever. And yeah, maybe. But... What we mean by money is really a way to make your will happen in the world. Like, I don't really believe in magic, but money is as close as we get. Because with money, you can command Amazon, and there it happens. You just declare it, and if you have money... They do it and it happens and it's as close as hocus pocus as we can get that you can click and then in two hours you can have one of those giant Stanley tumblers, you can have a new pair of Crocs, you can have a new television and on that new television with money and lots of streaming services and we're all upset about it, but with money you can declare and that TV will show you anything you want. It becomes becomes your looking glass out into an unimaginable universe of whatever you desire. You can conjure it. You can make it happen if you have money. Money makes the world say yes to what you want. So when we're talking about money, boy, I think Jesus is pretty perceptive to start talking about which kingdom you belong to. I think he's pretty perceptive to start helping you understand why you might choose the frail kingdom, the problematic kingdom, the impermanent kingdom. Which kingdom do you belong to? You can be his. And if you are his, then it's all his stuff. Now, if you trust him, that's great. But it's going to get difficult. If you want to reject that, then it's all your stuff. But of course, it's also your responsibility. You become like this anxious person who's always looking at their stuff, wondering how to make it more, but also looking at the world and seeing all the threats to their stuff. Yeah, I've got stuff, and I need more stuff, but I've got, I've got a lot of moths. I've got moth problems. I don't know about rust. I've got to figure out how to keep the rust off of this stuff. I need this stuff. And then thieves, they could be anywhere. They could come at any time. Home invasion. And they start figuring out not just rings, but like big bolts and big guns. And big... What's the anxiety there? I have this stuff, and this stuff is my life. And I've got to protect it. I, I can, all I can see are threats to my life. No, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. Hey, Christians, you can't have both here. You can't say you're his and then try to have some of that peace and freedom, but then live like it's all yours. You can't have two masters. You're going to hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the other and despise the one. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and yourself okay, so, so what do we do about this? Well, I think you may not want to hear this, but one of the things you need to do is live as though it's his money and not yours. Like if, if you want to say, I am in his kingdom, then you have to start living that way. And Jesus describes giving your money away in a way that is not only generous, but sacrificial. If you're in his kingdom and it's all his stuff, then your money needs to start going to his aims. And it needs to go there in a way that, that fights that little piece of you that says, but no, but it's mine though, right? I mean, why does God ask you for a percentage of what you have? It's because he doesn't have enough. It's all his. Why does he ask you? Well, it may be to include you in what he's doing. It it may be a practice that helps you to understand that it's his kingdom, not yours. If you want to fight anxiety about whether or not you have enough money, and this is so counterintuitive, the first thing you need to do is take what little bit you have and start giving some away. Why? Because it's going to take your eyes off of that money and put your eyes up onto the king over all the money. Again, that's a hard thing to hear maybe, but it's true. Now, if you reject what I'm saying, keep living in it, and then when we come back to this, you know, next year or whatever, try again. But it makes sense. Jesus is talking about your heart and where your heart is. So you're going to have to do something pretty radical here to go from the thing that your heart has or wants or thinks is so valuable and perfect to the thing that you, you're choosing, that you know you should see as most valuable. And of course, if you could trust Him, then you would have no worries. You'd have no wants. Now, that, that sounds great, right? Like, if we could just do that, then, verse 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And you say, amen, I'm not anxious anymore. My kids, they'll watch a show. And when I'm around, I could care less about that show. But even though I don't care about the show or the characters, the formula of those shows is such that you know that whatever problem happens at the end of act one is going to be more than resolved at the end of Act 3. I don't care, so I'm not worried. But even if I cared what happens to, you know, these brightly colored characters, I know that at the end of the story, it's going to be fine. Yeah, it may be a two-parter. At the end of the two-parter, it's going to be fine. That's how TV works. You may, at moments, be mildly interested in how they go from broken to not, but it's never a question. For the Christian, you can look at the Lord and start to gain that level of confidence in your world. Hopefully not that level of like apathy, but that you would see the world and see the things in it and see the real problems there and say, well, I don't know how. I'm interested to see how. But I know that he will make all things well because I trust him because I've been trusting him, because I'm growing in my trust of him. Now, where where are we in all this? That sounds pretty great. It sounds like, okay, that's just the thing that I do. I just do that. I just stop being anxious. Done. Never be anxious about money again. Fixed. No, of course not. It's like somebody saying, oh, you're fat? Well, here's a a solution. We're going to limit your calories. We're going to up your exercise. Here's your solution, bud. Your solution is 1,500 calories a day, seven miles a day. Get on it. You won't be fat anymore. Good luck to you. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Feels like it. The distance between where I am and where it seems like I should be is enormous. But there's a commentator, a pastor out in California that talks about the whole Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, the sum of all that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the sum of all he teaches in scripture is in these words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. The great purpose of salvation, the goal of the gospel, and the great yearning of the heart of God is for all men to be like him, be with him. That perfection is also utterly impossible in man's own power. Man's own righteousness is impossible, but it's so imperfect. Uh, is possible, but it's so imperfect that it's worthless. Even if you do things you think are right, yeah, it's possible. But what you're going to do and the way you will do it is so imperfect that it's worthless. God's righteousness is impossible for the very reason that it is perfect. But the impossible righteousness becomes possible for those who trust in Jesus Christ, because he gives them his righteousness, That is precisely our Lord's point in all these illustrations and in the whole sermon is to lead his audience to an overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy, to a beatitude attitude, and I'll describe that in a second, that shows them their need of a savior, an enabler, who alone can empower them to meet God's standard of perfection. Do you ever read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Here's what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What do those verses mean? They mean when you run into Jesus' teaching on anxiety, just like when you run into Jesus' teaching on lust or anger or prayer or fasting or a thousand other things, your standard is going to be so far below what he's teaching you. You should despair. Despair you should give up. You're not going to win that fight. And if you do that, then you become somebody who feels like the first part of all these beatitudes, poor in spirit, mournful, meek, and hungering and thirsting for a righteousness you do not have. But if you can get there, and there's a reason Jesus preached this to us, he wanted you to see that you're there. If you can get there, then the second half of each of these beatitudes happens and you start to receive the kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheritance, and righteousness. How does that happen? Well, that's the gospel, friends. That's what we're preaching on all this stuff. If you want relief from anxiety, sure, go on more walks. Let's talk about budgeting, whatever. But if you want relief from anxiety, you have to go from your kingdom to his. You have to realize that you can't build a rival kingdom. You have to come into his kingdom, and you can only do that by his grace. So so what do you do with Jesus? Listen, if if you can trust him for salvation, That's why Jesus came and died on a cross. He came to pay our penalty and provide his righteousness. So you and I, we get to receive his righteousness and hand him our guilt. We stand before God guilty, but not. Why not? Because forgiven. That's what he does on the cross. And he just gives it out freely. It's his pleasure and his great glory to just give it out freely for those who will trust in Jesus for their salvation. Now, if you'll do that, you may start to trust him for your provision as well. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But that transition can start to happen. So, so do you know him? If you do, do you, do you trust him? Are you doing things on a daily basis that help you to transition your heart from this riddled, temporary, impermanent, but kind of in quotes, your kingdom to what is the perfect the unassailable, the absolutely impenetrable kingdom of God. Oh, I pray that you would. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask right now that you give us clarity on your word, that you give us clarity on the gospel, that you make us a people who have faith. And not just faith that you're gonna feed us like the birds or clothe us like the lilies, but faith that if you save us because you love us, that no matter how broken this world is or how likely starvation may seem, One day, all will be well, and all will be well, and all will be well. We can trust, Lord, the resurrection happened, and the kingdom to come will come. Will you make us a people who trust, Father? And as we trust, Lord, will you help us to not be anxious? And as we sort of start to grow in our our trust, and as we start to lessen in our anxiety, will you give us grace with ourselves? for how long that process is. And maybe, Father, too, you'll help us to see other people and comfort them with the comfort with which you've comforted us. We pray now as we sing that you would take these things, write them on our hearts, and change our lives. In your holy name we pray. Amen.